Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante. The The second second to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour (laughs) through the dark chambers of our unconscious. Seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here Here we go. We are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, About to get postmodern, y'all. About to get postmodern up in here. No, it's going to be one of those podcasts, I think. Yeah, probably. Good morning. How you doing? Listen, this is a this is a ambitious and heady podcast for uh, <laughs> ten o'clock on a Sunday. I think it's the perfect time. Okay. Yeah. We take sh- me to church. We shall see. That's a good one. Um, that song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, did, did you uh, listen? You'd listen to the Foucault episode I did, right? I did indeed. Did you listen to the part where I sang? No, no. Did I sing or did I? Oh, I'm, I'm getting it confused with when I howled like a like a coyote. Oh, okay. When I did my coyote howl, it wasn't on the Foucault episode. It was on the one before that. I don't remember that. I feel like I did sing. Did I sing? Oh I boy. I had to listen to a lot of it at work, so some of it. So I'm, you might have missed. You might have missed. Yeah. I did. I did make a coyote call. Coyote, coyote call into the microphone while I was doing the podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, it wasn't like full primal. It was. It was. It wasn't like, you know, the volume was. Uh, it was. I kept it under control. It wasn't like Quentin Rampage Jackson. I should have done it. I should have just did it. Oh yeah, man. yeah, Quentin. I uh, I love coyotes. I think that they're cool, fucking animals. Hey man, did the, the did the um, Fury and Wilder fight happen last night? Was that last I night? Do not know. Oh my I am God. not keeping up with the MMA world. See, you fool. That's a, that's, these are, you fool. <laughs> you fool. This is, this is a boxing bout that I was talking oh, about. Oh, Fury Wilder. Yeah. yeah no, a, I don't a, know. I still don't know if that happened Fury either. Fury Wilder 3. Let's find out. Um, oh, shit. It's on 3 already? Tyson Fury knocks out Deontay Wilder God, to retain it. the Gotta title. Gotta love Golly. Gotta what, love Tyson Fury. What a badass. That's great. He's a gypsy, right? I think he yeah, says he's a gypsy. Yeah, Irish gypsy. Yeah. Golly. What a badass. All right. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's not at all what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about this bo- This po- podcast has just been hijacked. We're a boxing podcast now. <laughs> this would be the most uninformed boxing podcast of all time. <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. Um, all right, so we're doing... We're, this is part two in the postmodernist series. I did the Foucault episode the other day all by myself. Um, anybody who knows anything about Foucault, I'd be very curious what you think about my rendition because that was... So here's the thing, man. The style of those podcasts for me is to go and get, if you've written a bunch of shit, it's to go and get quotes from all of the different material that you've produced, which means you're taking a lot of shit out of context. And it's actually not easy to put together a narrative that way, but you can you can get a sampling of all the different stuff that they wrote over, over the period of time that they wrote. So you can get a pretty good snapshot of what their ideas look like. And that's what I'm trying to understand. 
Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. No, no, I don't have. So I, I, there, there was a bunch of shit for Foucault. That's why it took so long for me to get through it. Yeah. Um, I didn't have as much on Derrida, and that, and and so that's what we're doing today. And I thought that um, doing it together because it wasn't going to be like a three-hour podcast. Well, we'll see. But um, you you sent me the notes for Deleuze. Oh, you want to do Deleuze instead of Derrida? No, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, it's not a want. I just that's what I have notes for is Deleuze. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I actually sent you both of them, but I sent you I sent you Deleuze what like yesterday. You f- slacker. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, then I still have it. One second. Yeah, you should have it. All right, one second here. Derrida. There Derrida. we go. All right. Well, Jacques, I, w- I read the wrong notes, so Jacques Derrida. <laughs> well, you know what? That's fine because this will be good. And you know, it's funny, man, because I thought the Deleuze. I'm not anywhere close to ready to do Deleuze. We could, if you want. But, no, no. It's um, okay. But try. I'm not 100% sure if I want to do Deleuze by myself or if I want to do it with you. So okay. we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll cross that bridge. All right. But uh, Derrida is what we're going to do in the middle. That's what we're going to do today. And um, there wasn't as much to this, so I thought we could do this more conversationally. And this is going to be fine because, listen, I, I was brand new to postmodernism when I started reading Foucault. And getting into Derrida, this is like I'm pretty fresh here. I'm not the expert necessarily. But... If you didn't read the Derrida quotes, you're going to be just like everybody else listening. So you can ask the questions that they're all thinking, you know. So this is fine. I'll be channeling you, the listener. (laughs) So, um, all right. So we we started getting into postmodernism because it came up with Jordan Peterson and... Anywhere else did it come up, or was it mostly with Jordan Peterson where we were encountering? Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus Russell. About it, yeah. Uh, you should tweet it. At, you should tweet the episode at him and try to get him to listen. Thaddeus. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is what's Thaddeus's position on it? Is he critical like Jordan, or is he on board? He's he likes postmodernism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that. He, I don't know that I would say that he. I don't know that he would say that he's on board. Thaddeus is like not the on board type completely, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think that he definitely finds value in postmodernism. I do too. Yeah. And I was a little bit surprised because I didn't initially expect to get a bunch of value out of it because Jordan Peterson wrote it off writ large because of its connection with communism. That's a that's a like a big Thaddeus Russell issue with Jordan Peterson. Gotcha. And it's funny because it makes me wonder, and I mean no disrespect, but sure. it, but it makes me wonder how much of it Jordan's actually read. And the reason I say that is because when I read Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze, I saw so much of what Jordan Peterson says in their their own words. It makes me think that if Jordan read them, that he would have seen it too. Like, yeah. how could he have not see it? And then you wouldn't be able to write off Foucault and Derrida all, all together if their ideas overlap so much with yours. So that's kind of the, the point that I wonder about with, with Jordan. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, no, no disrespect. You guys know my opinion of Jordan Peterson is high. You're echoing Thaddeus Russell right now. That's okay. exactly what he says, is he does not think that Jordan Peterson has read Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, you know. So. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the reason, the main reason that I think I missed all of these guys, and maybe this is true for Jordan Peterson as well, is that they're pretty recent. Like yeah, these, these, these philosophers were writing mostly in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, and you've admittedly been the guy who thinks the older it is, the better it is. Exactly. Yeah. So I hold a tremendous amount of value. This is the this is the thing that I say about like religion, and I completely admit that this is silly. But you you'll understand what I mean. 
you take a religion like Christianity that has a 2,000 plus year history, and you take a religion like Jehovah Witnesses or Mormonism that has a 100 year history, and you're like, look, their beliefs line up almost 100%. One of them is ancient. The other one came out yesterday. <laughs> My uncle knew Joseph Smith. Like, yeah. you know, I'm just fucking around, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. So you can write it off as complete hokum. But if it has a 2,000-year history, for some reason it's harder to do that. You're like, oh, there's something to it because yeah, people yeah. have been believing it for 2,000 years. We would have got rid of it if it was we, stupid. We would have got rid of it, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, much like Foucault may have suggested, much get rid of it. Get rid of it. Well, let me ask you this, Kyle. So you listened to the Foucault episode I did, and you read through the Deleuze notes. So you have some postmodernism bouncing around in your in your brain. What was your opinion of it in general? That's hard to kind of ask because it's such a weird ph- philosophy and it, what it focuses on. But what you know, what do you think? So I, it was. It's hard because my my thoughts are really scattered. Because, like I said, I had to listen to most of this at work, um, and I couldn't really take notes. Uh, and I would think of things, and then they would kind of slip out of my head. Hate that. Uh, the most, one of the things, you you're like critical of it because it's like, uh, what am I trying to say here? You're critical of it because it's suggesting that we tear down, you know, the con, you know, what's the, the, the way things are. Yeah, the constructs and institutions. Yeah. That, yep. Yep. Um, I am just more favorable to that. I, you know, I, th- I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that, and that's interesting. So let me do this. Let me, let me try to recap. So we, we talked about how this sort of came up because we, we were doing so much talking about Jordan Peterson, and he had problems with it. Those problems boiled down to the connection between these postmodern philosophers and Marxism and communism because they're all very sympathetic to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of the modern progressive political uh, dialogue has origins in this postmodernist philosophy. So there's reasons for me to dislike them. Sure. There's reasons for me to want to agree with Jordan about that. But I didn't want it wasn't fair to these people to do that. So when I went in and read it, just to recap what, what Foucault had to say, it was something like this. Uh, everything that happens in the world um, is driven by a power dynamic it's driven by a struggle of one person over against another or one group against another um and he's got this paradoxical um like emphasis on the group and on the individual that i can't quite reconcile where there's times where foucault talks about the group as being the most important thing he talks about something called a political will and he thinks that a group of human beings can have uh an agreed political will that they can create that exists outside of them as individuals and is attached only to the group and that what the group is doing in the world is significant what the individuals are doing within that group is not it's like we're ants and the group is the colony that's what matters so there so there's that there's that way of looking at the world that you can see in communism first of all and then there's that power dynamic thing that drives it all so that's what i took from foucault you know, very, very high level. Um, I mean, do you agree or disagree with that? Or what what are are your thoughts? I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) Um, So whatever you want to say, you got any thoughts on that? I think, I just think that, I mean, I'm a big individualist, you know, uh, but I think that there is some interesting things about collective 
you know, for good for good or ill, I think that there are interesting qualities to when people become a collective. Um, and the idea that a group can you know and you said that it it was obvious in communism but i think that the idea that a group can do something important uh, and the individual you know the individuals making up the group are not really doing anything important mm-hmm. i mean i think i just think about like we have like a bipartisan government it's like both of those those uh, those groups of people are steering the uh the foreign policy at mm. domestic policy in you know, an increasingly similar direction, both of them. But still, it's like the the idea that there's these two groups. Uh, I mean, and then you think about like the average Democrat or the average Republican; they're not fucking doing anything. Uh, but so that that's actually a pretty a pretty interesting analogy. So if we just talk about the American political system, and it basically simplifies down to uh, two sides, that that power dynamic is. Um, is is a really good illustration um you know the uh, uh the conservatives and the liberals pushing um in different directions back and forth the left moving us a little one way and the right moving us back a little and so you get this image of um uh i guess a bit of a dance uh and a harmony that gets formed between the um uh the back and forth of the political parties and that's an image that um, we're going to see over and over and over again when we're talking about these postmodernists, uh, especially when the way Foucault talks about the power dynamic. Um, and we'll see that we'll see that today with Derrida, um, a little bit a little bit here in, in just a sec. I do want to stop for a second and uh, um, just uh, alert the uh, the audience that Kyle is no longer a part of the podcast uh, today. He had an, an emergency; he had to leave had to leave unexpectedly. So um, I'm going to carry on without him. Uh, today for Derrida. So without further ado, I'm going to do the boring bit first, uh, which is to talk, uh, I'm going to read, I'm going to read a little bit from Wiki, um, because it does a little bit of a better and more concise job than I can do talking about some of the, some of the key concepts that uh, Jacques Derrida brought to postmodernism. Um, the big one is this word. I'll remind you that Derrida, if you hadn't noticed, is French. Foucault as well. Deleuze, who we're going to be talking about as well. So a lot of these guys are French. This word that I'm going to bring to your attention is also French. Oui, oui. The word is difference. Difference. If that word sounds like difference, it's because it kind of means difference. <laughs> All right, difference. All right, so Wiki says that that is the central concept in Derrida's deconstruction. So we talked about deconstruction already a little bit. Wiki talks about that as a critical outlook concerned with the relationship between text and meaning. The term difference means difference and deferral of meaning. So I'll do my best to explain this to you, but I'm going to read a little bit more from Wiki on difference. He says that, Wiki says that difference gestures at a number of features that govern textual meaning. The first, relating to deferral, is the notion that words and signs can never summon forth fully what they mean. They can only be defined through appeal to other words from which they defer. So that's the defer part of difference. Thus, the meaning is forever deferred or postponed through an endless chain of signifiers. 
The second, relating to difference, concerns the force that differentiates elements from one another, and in so doing engenders binary oppositions and hierarchies that underpin meaning itself. All right, so I'll stop there. That bit about binary oppositions and hierarchies is something that you'll see um, today in the progressive language all the time. Um, because when we're talking about power in the, in the dispossessed, this word, this word hierarchies comes up. Derrida's bringing it up here not from a social perspective, but from a perspective of meaning. And what he's saying is really, actually, really interesting. And it's, it's, not, it's not dissimilar from what Foucault said uh, that we talked about uh, already. When Derrida talks about difference, what he's saying is that what a word means is only knowable in in, in words. So you can say what something means, um, that's going to defer to some other words that explain what that thing means. And what, and you know, that next bit can be explained using other words. Um, and there's not really an end to that so that the meaning is deferred forever. So you might say, um, I'm trying to think of a good example So you might say something like the earth is a sphere. And I'm trying to understand what a sphere is. So I ask you what a sphere is. You say, you know, it's kind of like a circle. So now I've got this second word, circle, that's describing to me what a sphere is somehow. And then I say, yeah, but what's but what does that mean? What's a circle exactly? And then you might say something like, you know, it's... Um, uh, it's a, cent- a central point um, where every point um, from the center is, is equal distant. So that's what a circle is. Now we've got these mathematical concepts that come in. So even with mathematical concepts, these are words that I'm bringing in to describe some other word that you, that you don't understand. And, and I'm bringing that up only to describe some other word that you don't understand. And so this is, this is a, you know, I'm sure a little bit muddy, but it's a, a reasonable example of understanding how how meaning is deferred in language, and that there never seems to be an origin point. If you're if you're asking what that means, and I'm bringing up new words, it just keeps going and going and going, and I'm never getting to a point where I find the absolute reference point. I'm just you just coming up with whatever words I can to that have similar meaning. It's it's interesting. It's like um, it's like every idea is is surrounded by a cloud of meaning. And, you know, that idea has come up before and it's going to come up today, Um, but it's something like that. And so if that's the case, if that's the way things are, um, it seems like what we've done is created a bunch of complexity and meaning surrounding something that you can never actually get to. You can never actually point to whatever that absolute reference is for, for meaning. It does seem interesting to me that this philosophy implies that there's an absolute reference, even if you can't get to it. That seems to me to be a religious sort of a statement and one that uh, is strange coming from these postmodern atheist types because that's pretty much what they are. All right, so a little bit more from Wiki here. Um, it says, uh, Derrida's approach argues that because the perceiver's mental state is constantly in flux and defers from, from one rereading to the next, a general theory describing this phenomenon is unachievable. So this is interesting. This is something like what uh, those pre-Socratic philosophers said when they say you can never step into the same river twice. Um, He's saying that your mental state is never the same twice. So everything you experience is new somehow. 
Um, and that's true if you're reading a text, a text that's supposed to have some defined meaning. Like even if the text does a very good job of being static and having some fixed meaning, every time I read it, I'm in a different headspace. So it's going to mean something different every time I read it anyway. Something like that. So there's, there's more evidence here that meaning is hard to pin down. It, it, it's fleeting. You know, the more you try to pin it down, the more slippery it gets, like a wet bar of soap. All right. Um, Wiki goes on and says, a term related to the idea of difference is supplement. And, it, quote, itself bound up in a supplementary play of meaning which defines semantic reduction. So, you know, it's wordy and, you know, philosophers like to do this, especially postmodernists. They like to create words to invent meaning when, when words don't have, when existing words don't have the meaning that they want. They're just going to invent their own words, which is, which is beautiful in some ways and confusing in others. Um, so let me explain what he means here. Uh, he's saying that when he says it's bound up in a supplementary play of meaning, he's talking about, like I said, where where the meaning of one word is just re referring to some other word, and it, it might not have the same meaning but similar meaning, so there ends up being an interplay of this related ideas and the meaning in these related ideas uh, that's important. And he said that, it, that that defies semantic reduction. So now I have to tell you what that means. Semantic reduction is the loss of meaning in a word or in language as the result of the language changing, evolving. Um, so an obvious example comes to mind, but you might think of something like the word awesome. The word awesome. We use that today to mean something like cool, something like exciting, good, something like that. Uh, when that word was invented, that was could not be further from the truth. It, to say something was cool was a far cry from something being awesome. Okay, think about what the word awe means. Awe-inspiring, right? Something that's awe-inspiring is making you feel little in the presence of something great. It's making you feel the reality of something greater than yourself. That is not cool. That's fucking awesome. You understand? And yet that word has lost its meaning. We saw it. It happened in our generation, you know, for the most part. That word has lost its meaning. Its meaning has degraded. Now, it doesn't mean awe anymore. It means cool, exciting, good, something like that. So this is also something that he's pointing out. It's like even if we could come up with words that had explicitly defined meaning and all, there was no question about it, even then the meaning of those things will fade over time. So it's almost like it's necessary to invent new words and new concepts because the power and effectiveness of existing ideas and concepts is constantly breaking down. And man, is that interesting in, in terms of how it relates to the physical world because there's this idea called entropy. We've talked about this, but this, this idea in physics called entropy. Everything's always breaking down in the natural world. You know, atoms have a half-life, you know, they're all constantly approaching their death. Uh, the universe is constantly expanding closer and closer to the heat death that we talked about. You know, uh, everything's always breaking down. And what Derrida says is that that happens with meaning and concepts and ideas. Even, even those constructs of our psyche and our consciousness, those things that exist in our minds, even those things are breaking down, like the atoms of the cosmos are breaking down. That's amazing. 
It's amazing. It's one of those fractal examples that, that once you start looking for them, you know, once the mystic experience tells you that, that, that the world, that reality is some sort of fractal experience, you start looking for those, for those things. And this is another example that entropy exists in concepts of consciousness, the same as it exists in the material world. That's just more evidence that consciousness in the material world are more one thing than we allow, generally allow ourselves to believe. And here Derrida is pointing that out, that very mystic thing, he's pointing that out. All right, and then uh, Wiki goes on to say that it may seem contradictory to suggest that difference is neither a word nor a concept, because that's what Derrida is trying to convince you of here. Uh, the difference itself between words cannot only be another word, it says. If that is the case, then difference appeals to ontology, creating an even bigger problem. So ontology is the question of how things got here. It's the question of creation. It's, the, it's, a, it's a religious question. And what Wiki's, what Wiki's pointing out here is that if the difference between ideas is only another word, then, then everything appeals to some other word. And that can't go on forever. It has to end someplace. And so that's how it becomes a religious question. It's like if, like to take the Big Bang for, for an example. If all of the material world uh, and the material cosmos has emerged from this, from this original spark, which is what we believe, then we can't get rid of this idea of an original spark. So this is what Derrida is pointing out, that, uh, that if difference appeals only to other words, then it, then it sort of becomes a religious question. It's just going to, it's going to beg the question of an original uh, or an absolute um, signified, as Derrida would say. And then the wiki says, so difference is either an appeal to an infinite mystery similar to God, or it becomes empty of any and all meaning and is thus rendered superfluous. So Derrida's concept of difference, which runs at the heart of his philosophy, talking all about meaning and poking holes in meaning, for, for lack of a better word, um, that that either, that either references some ultimate signified, as he's going to say, the infinite mystery behind meaning, or it, it signifies nothing at all, and there is no meaning, and even the word, even this concept of difference is bullshit which is really an interesting corner to paint yourself into Derrida you know, for, for an atheist. Because you're saying either this idea that I'm bringing up references God, so you're the atheist bringing this up, or it means nothing, and, my, and Derrida's philosophy is meaningless. Huh. So an atheist is telling you here that either there's a God, or everything I'm telling you is nonsense. Seems weird coming from an atheist. Seems a bit weird. Let's keep going. All right, and then where Wiki ends, ends here says this. For Derrida, there was a deferral, a continual and indefinite postponement, as the signified can never be achieved. The, information, inf the formation of the, of the linguistic sign is marked by movement and it's not static. So he, what he's saying here is, that, again, there's a continual and indefinite postponement of meaning. So if I'm looking at a word or an idea or, or a sign, it signifies something, right? That's its meaning. It, you know, the word C-O-W signifies a cow, an animal that exists. So we know what it's like. We know what it looks like. We know what it sounds like, right? It, it signifies something. Um, but if I can only explain to you what a cow is by, by reference to other words... And I can only explain to you what those words mean by reference to other words. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on. That we can never actually get 
to this signified, to the cow. We can't actually ever get to the reality, which is very interesting. It's like that conversation we continue to have, and Kyle and I brought up many times, about objective reality versus our subjective experience. We look out at the world, we see the way things seem, but we don't know for sure if what we're perceiving is, is reflecting what is actually there, or if it's just some sort of an illusion, or to what degree it's an illusion. We have no idea. So we're never seeing what's actually signified, even by our perceptions. It's like our perceptions are a, a, a graphic user interface, like a computer. Our, our perceptions are um, they're the words and the text. What, what's behind them is something that's not clear. And that's what Derrida is saying. We can never get to what's signified. We can never get to what's signified, the absolute thing that's there behind our, our thoughts, behind our um, words, behind our perceptions. That is amazing. That's a way of looking at your lived experience in a similar way to, to you reading a book. And your lived experience, your perceptions, are the things being signified, just like the words in the book, excuse me, the signifiers. But what's signified behind those words is something not, not clear. What's signified behind our perceptions, behind the words of our reality, it's not clear. And maybe it's changing. He says it's marked by movement. It's not static. It's constantly changing. That's interesting. It's like that, that potential, that Terminator 2 substance that I always bring up in analogy. That's the thing that I think is the closest idea to what I can bring to the table as to what might actually be behind our perceptions. Something like potentiality, pure potentiality, could be anything. And Derrida's language could mean anything. Something like that. All right, so here's my, here's my take on this introduction, high level. Derrida adopts the attitude that meaning is an illusion. So remember, we have to ask, is meaning referring to an infinite mystery like God? Or is meaning referencing nothing at all? Those are, that's the choice Derrida is asking us to make. Now, he seems to be adopting the, the attitude that meaning is an illusion. He takes this, what I would call maybe a more pessimistic or nihilistic interpretation. Um, if meaning is an illusion, okay, and therefore can and should be apprehended and molded to our will, uh, while Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, he opts for the religious or the optimistic interpretation that meaning is paramount. It's not that meaning doesn't exist. It's not that meaning is an illusion. It's that meaning actually does refer to this ultimate signified, to something behind our perceptions, to what's actually there. Um, and that's a mysterious, supernatural, eternal, and unknowable something which rests at the foundation of being itself, according to Jordan Peterson. Uh, Derrida would say that, that it would be something that rests at the foundation of meaning itself. Um... But six have done six of one half a dozen of another. Um, so, so I do think that the argument, as I've laid it out, that Jordan and Derrida would take, they would agree that this is the question we're facing. Is meaning really referring to some infinite mystery? Um, or is it an illusion? Like that really is one way of asking the, the, the religious question. Um, and Derrida and Jordan would, I think, would agree that that's, that's the question, but they would answer it differently. 
Now, if you had to choose to believe that the unknowable mystery behind meaning is somehow everything or nothing, which would you pick? So one of those seems optimistic to me. The other seems nihilistic. And if you choose the nihilistic option, as I think Derrida does, and maybe he, did, he does that only to save face academically, you know, because, because he's supposed to be a modern man. He's supposed to be a modern thinker and an atheist, right? So maybe he, maybe he has no choice but to go with this pessimistic route, saying that meaning doesn't exist. Um, because if he didn't, he would have to acknowledge the existence of God, something like that. I don't know. Um, so if you pick the nihilistic option like Derrida does, what does that leave for you? I mean, what does it leave for you to do? Um, what does it leave for you to be? If the mystery at the bottom of reality is meaninglessness, what do you do with that? Do you admit that you are a meaningless phenomenon in the midst of a meaningless and arbitrary existence? Or do you do, as Derrida might suggest, do you somehow use the power you seem to have to harness and transform this meaninglessness into whatever end you please? Is that a liberating idea, do you think? Or one that attempts to rationalize and wish away the contradiction uh, that admits without saying so? that the mystery at the bedrock of reality is something. So meaninglessness is actually something. It is something that can be wielded, as Derrida implies, and made to do our bidding. Even more, it's something that can produce consciousness, because it produced Derrida, right, his consciousness, and provides a place for it to exist. That's, that's the material cosmos. So we can call it meaninglessness if you want, and that's as good a word as any. But what, what, what is really meant here is something like God. God is the idea to which we can attribute creation of consciousness, of material reality, of thoughts, concepts, and ideas. It is God that is the unknowable and infinite reference behind signs, signifiers, and language. It is just as Derrida supposes, the infinite potentiality that rests behind our perceptions and behind our thoughts. It is undifferentiated. Yes, it can become anything. As such, it has infinite meaning. And paradoxically, infinite meaning is essentially no meaning at all. Meaninglessness. Interesting. All right, so you'll notice as we're getting into this that there's a lot that Derrida talks about language, just like Foucault did, um, which I find interesting. You know, I had this epiphany from a mystic experience one time that I never really understood, and I think I'm starting to understand it now more through this through the postmodern perspective. And it was, and again, you know, the mystic experience I'm referring to is the kind of becoming one with the universe um, sort of experience. When you have that experience, the the boundaries between subject and object they 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 fade away you kind of become one thing you become one with your own experience it's a very interesting experience to have but it's something that always it always made me feel like there was something virtual about consciousness there's something there's something virtual about reality that 
isn't obvious, that comes out in the mystic experience and strikes you as really off-putting. Maybe not off-putting, but, but interesting. Interesting anyway. And, and it reminds me of the way these postmoderns talk about language. It's like, it's like a human being can be looked at in the way that we look at symbols and signs. Um, that there's some that there's some way of of understanding our existence, our material biological existence, as something like as something like a like a coded message that has meaning, deeper meaning encoded within it. Um, it's hard to hard to understand, but it's something that resonates when when I read these postmodern philosophers. So. I want to talk about language through Derrida's perspective uh, to, to kind of kick it off. Quote number one, I speak only one language, and it is not my own. So that's interesting. Uh, what Derrida's pointing out is that he's inherited a language. And he was, he, he was born and taught to speak in a certain way. So he speaks only one language, and it's not his own. And that means... So it has some interesting implications. It means that the words he uses were invented by somebody else. That he doesn't exactly know what they're supposed to mean. So he's using words that were invented by somebody else that it's not ever clear whether what he means by those words are what was intended. Um, so it's almost like he can never he can never genuinely express himself through language because it's always being filtered by the the language itself by the history of the language and the words and the meaning and the changing of the meaning that's constantly happening and the breaking down of meaning that's constantly happening. So what, do you, what the point we're, we're making here is that even to, even to speak to you in Derrida's words and try to communicate to you what his, his thoughts and ideas, that even doing so is sort of pointless because it's not ever clear that the language or the meaning is, is what was intended. We can never know that. All right, he goes on. No one gets angry at a mathematician or a physicist whom he or she doesn't understand, or at someone who speaks a foreign language, but rather at someone who tampers with your own language. So he's, he's pointing out something interesting here, something that I have pointed out before. Um, in the political landscape in particular, when these new words get invented or when new meanings get attributed to words, um, how how that f does feel like somebody's manipulating me. It feels like somebody's taking me out of context on purpose. It feels like somebody's taking away my will and my intention by tampering with the language. Um, that's what he's pointing out here, and 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 what he's and the point he's making is that that's what pisses us off. It's like it's, we're we're not going to get frustrated if we're if we're talking to somebody uh, who's struggling, you know, with an accent or, or a foreign language. Let's say if we're kind people, but if somebody starts pretending that I meant something I didn't mean, whoo, that's that's a surefire way to piss somebody off. Put words in their mouth that they didn't mean. So this is interesting. It's like the first the first quote. I speak only one language, and it's not my own. <clears throat> it, it indicates that. Uh, we can never genuinely express ourselves, and that, that meaning is something we can never pin down anyway. Then the second quote says, when that happens, when meaning changes, we get, all, we get all kinds of pissed about it. So it's inevitable, and it's constantly pulling, pulling the rug out from under, under us in some way. 
Next quote he, he uses is, um, the poet is the man of metaphor, while the philosopher is interested only in the truth of meaning, beyond even signs and names, and the sophist manipulates empty signs. The poet plays on the multiplicity of signifieds. And I, I guess what I want to bring up here is just the idea that, uh, you know, Foucault also talked, talked a lot about art in the context of language and in the context of, you know, your identity, your individual identity. And Derrida's talking about that here when he brings up poetry. So he says the poet is the man of metaphor, and what he's doing is playing on the multiplicity of signifieds. He's, he's basically saying, because things have essentially infinite meaning, and it does, that doesn't mean that things mean everything. It means that the meaning of things is always changing, so it constantly means something different than it used to mean, and it never ends. So things have infinite meaning. That doesn't mean that they mean everything all at once. It just means that their meaning, whatever it is, doesn't stop. It just keeps changing. It, beca- it keeps becoming something different. And what a poet does is plays on that, on the idea that words, that signs have infinite meaning, and that that's a playground. That's something that you can use to, to make puns. That's something you can use to play with rhyme. That's something you can use to play with meaning and to even invent new concepts hybrid ideas and concepts, you know, things like that. That's what the poet's doing. So so just more evidence that meaning is, again, hard to pin down, hard to define. It's, it's sort of infinite and unknowable and constantly transforming. And then Derrida says, the traditional statement about language is that it is in itself living and that writing is the dead part of language. And so you get the idea that language is living if it's always transforming and a meaning is always changing. But somebody who's written a text wrote it in a certain place and time, in a certain context. So that's what he means by writing being the dead part. Um, And that's not to say what we already said a little earlier, that you're always in a different headspace each time you're reading a text. So it's going to mean something different to you, even if the author's intention was written in stone. That even, even the meaning to you is always going to be transforming. So that's interesting. Then Derrida says, What is called objectivity, scientific for instance, imposes itself only within a context which is extremely vast, old, firmly established, or rooted in a network of conventions, and yet which still, still remains a context. And so the point he's making here is that even... Even the most objective way of looking at the world, like the scientific way of looking at the world, which tries to take all subjectivity and consciousness out um, and looks only strictly at the objects and not at the subjects, that even that, the most objective way that we can uh, look at the world, that even that is rooted in a network of established conventions that constitute a context. So to the postmodernists, these contexts are kind of like we were talking about with language. There's something that interferes with the genuine expression of your self. Um, a, a context is a constraint. Just like you, you inherit a language from your ancestors and you can't ever say what you mean. You all can only speak in the words that were invented and laid out for you. That That's a constraint it keeps you from being able to say what you might say if you didn't have to use only the, the constructs of a language. That's, that's what's happening here. He's saying, look, even something as objective as science is rooted in a context. 
and it's not objective at all. So we pretend that it is, but it's not. It's like, what might science be if we didn't have to look through the scientific lens? If we didn't have to look through the empirical lens, the Aristotelian lens, if we didn't have to do that, what could science be? What could science be in lieu of rationality, in lieu of reason? What might it be then? What kind of crazy cyberpunk reality might, might we be able to unlock if we could only do that? So this is interesting. It's like even the things we think are most objective are not. They're not free of context. They're not free of conventions. They're not free of these limitations that are, that are you know, everywhere. Derrida says, every sign, linguistic or non-linguistic, spoken or written, as, as a small or large unity, can be cited, put between quotation marks. Thereby, it can break with every given context and engender infinitely new contexts in an absolutely non-saturatable fashion. This does not suppose that the mark is valid outside its context, but only, excuse me, but on the contrary, that there are only contexts without any center of absolute anchoring. On the contrary, that there are only contexts without any center of absolute anchoring. So this, this, this absolute anchoring we're talking about is that, you know, when we're talking about that idea of difference, it's that uh, final stopping point of the deferral of meaning. That, that what Derrida's saying is that that doesn't exist. That absolute anchoring of, of context does not exist. And every sign, linguistic or non-linguistic, spoken or, not, or non-spoken, all of, all of the things that have meaning, the things that hold meaning, signs and signifiers, symbols, language, you know, the spoken word. I would argue maybe even being itself. He says that, that those things can be put in between quotation marks. That the meaning, that the meaning can be changed like we've talked about, and that there is no absolute anchoring of that. And so one way of saying that is that there is no God. Another way of saying that is that there is no meaning. Another way of saying that is that language refers back to nothing. That thoughts and ideas and concepts refer back to nothing. Um... And I think this is the postmodern eventuality. This is something that they like. It's the idea that that the bedrock of reality, of meaning and of reality, is somehow nothing. And there's a way in which that's not wrong. And I think there's a way in which Jordan Peterson and I would agree with that. But what we would say, though, is that the nothingness that's being referred to or the meaninglessness that's being referred to is not nothing. It's something. It's what Jordan Peterson would call chaos. In his, uh, you know, his context for Maps of Meaning, he would call chaos or the Ouroboros. It's the union of opposites. It's the, it's the nothing from which, from which everything can be, can be born. It's potentiality. Something like that. Something like that Terminator 2 substance that I keep referring to in metaphor. And so I think that's the distinction here. Do you look at this do you look at this absolute anchoring of meaning as being as being missing as meaning nothing? Or do you think about it as existing and meaning everything? 
somehow all at the same time. And understanding those two ideas as being synonymous with one another. That the idea that there is no absolute anchoring of meaning and the idea that there is one, but that its meaning is infinite, that those concepts really are the same ideas. That's, that's something I wonder what Jordan Peterson would say, would answer. I really do. I, I, I wonder what Derrida, I mean, I, I wonder what Derrida would say, but I can imagine that he would vehemently disagree with that, even if he knew in his heart of hearts that I was right. Um, interesting. All right, so Derrida says, the lie is the future, one may venture to say. To tell the truth is, on the contrary, to say what is or what will have been. So this first bit, I think, is interesting. The lie is the future. So what does he mean by that? I think what he means is that the future is a fantasy. It's something that doesn't yet exist. It's something that hasn't yet come into being. It's something that we can invent, we can make, or we can at least influence in some way. Uh, we can influence what will be. And he's calling that a lie. The future is a lie in, in a way that, that seems to imply that it's not real. And I think that's true in a manner of speaking, but I don't think, I don't like the way he, the, the use of language. Um, the future is a lie. The truth is, on the contrary, what is or what will have been. So what is or what will have been once it's, once it's already been, that stuff's set in stone. That's the truth. Okay, that, that's the truth in comparison to the lie, which he's talking about as the future, as what hasn't yet happened. So to me, I think that that, you know, if you were a psychoanalyst, let's say, you would, you would talk about fantasy. You would say that the, that the future is a fantasy, not that the future is a lie. So, you know, a lie is so much more of a literary concept. And so that's interesting that Derrida, you know, being a literary critic of sorts, is, uh, is using that language. It's also interesting that all of these postmodernists that we've talked about, um, Derrida, Foucault, and Deleuze, that they all talk about psychoanalysis in their writings to some degree. And in fact, Deleuze wrote with a psychologist, um, co-authored many books. Um, none of them seem to think very well of psychoanalysis, uh, especially of the Freudian type. Um, they kind of bash it to some degree. So it's interesting to see that rather than using the word fantasy and using this word lie, which is more literary than psychological, that seems to be on purpose. That seems to be Derrida trying to avoid being religious again, trying to avoid stepping on Jungian grounds, talking about fantasy as though fantasy brings uh, reality into being, which is something that Jordan Peterson would say. You know, Derrida is going to avoid that by saying the lie is the future. He also says, Therefore, we will not listen to the source itself in order to learn what it is or what it means, but rather to the turns of speech, the allegories, figures, metaphors, as you will, into which the source has deviated, in order to lose it or rediscover it, which always amounts to the same. Man, and, and that, it, it, that, that's such a Jungian type of thing to say. He says, he says that... Um, he says the figures, metaphors into which the source has deviated in order to lose or rediscover it, which always amounts to the same thing. And so that's something that you, somebody like Carl Jung would say, look, you've got these figures and metaphors in the archetypes in your unconscious. And, 
And every time you realize one of these instincts uh, or instinctual forces, one of these archetypes, um, it's like rediscovering something you already knew. And people say that all the time. And they say that they say that often to Jordan Peterson about the, the points he makes, that it sounds like something you've always known, but nobody ever put it, put it that way to you before. That this is exactly the kind of thing that Derrida's talking about. For somebody who doesn't for somebody who doesn't believe in God and doesn't have a room for the unconscious and is critical of psychoanalysis, that's an amazing an amazing statement. Um and so there's this idea when he brings up the source itself, he's talking about that absolute reference the, where the buck stops, where difference, you know, finds its origin. Um, so that's interesting. I mean, it's hard to see how that's not a religious idea. And he goes on to say, we have no language. We cannot utter a single destructive proposition, which has not already slipped into the form, the logic and the implicit postulations of precisely what it seeks to contest. And again, this is just another way of saying we can never get out of this self-reference. When it comes to logic and meaning, we can never get out of this, of this uh, system that we're in. It's like we're born into it somehow. Um, we have no way out of it. The, the logic, you know, the way that Foucault will put it is, um, like again, talking about constraints and power. He's saying that the things that go unquestioned, that the traditions, that the um, assumptions, uh, that the things that are so obvious and, and uh, uh, ubiquitous that we never even question them, um, that, that those, those are the things, those are the constraints that we most need to find a way out of because we, know, we don't know what kind of potential uh, rests for us outside of them when we, can, when we can get outside of those constraints, even if that constraint is something as basic as our language. And Derrida's saying, no, it's, there's form and logic and all sorts of things that are like that, that are constraints that you're born into. He says, what must a text be if it can turn itself in order to shine again in a time that has no longer, that is no longer that of its productive source? And then again, repeat this resurgence after, after several deaths, counting among several others, those of the author. And this is an interesting quote. What must a text be if it can turn itself in order to shine again? So, so somebody like Derrida writes a book of philosophy, and then he dies. And after the postmodern era, you know, after the 60s and 70s and maybe the 80s, then new philosophies come up, right? And the postmodernist philosophy is no, not no longer the shiny penny, and it kind of gets shoved into the back of the toy box, and then 20, 30 years later, some really smart up-and-coming philosopher opens up Foucault or Derrida or Deleuze, and he reads these ideas again, and suddenly postmodernism has a resurgence with this new spin on it, right? That's what he's talking about. He's saying any book, and I'm just using his own as an example, he's like, what is it if it's something that can sort of die and then be reborn again? He says, turn itself in order to shine again. But you can see this like Jesus Christ rising from the dead when this idea gets picked up by the next generation and gets iterated in some new way with some new style and in some new direction. He's like, what is a text if it's like that? That it can survive its own death and even the death of its author and still be, be power in the world and still be influencing the world. You know, and, and of course that's something that Foucault... Uh, would tend to look at in a negative light, even though he talks about 
um, the written word and his philosophy in exactly the same way. He talks about wanting to become faceless and merge into the political will and be a part of the, the, way, the, the force that moves society and culture long after he's dead. That's exactly what Derrida's talking about. It's interesting. It's also, it's also kind of mystic, kind of religious. The idea that, you, you know, Foucault said he's creating a labyrinth for his ideas to exist in. He's creating this virtual world where his ideas can survive even his death. There's something religious about that, about that idea, like consciousness continuing after the death of the body and the resurrection in the way that Derrida is talking about here after the death of the author when somebody picks it up and reads it again and gets inspired. You know, the way, the way Plato talked about um, uh, Homer, you know, the, the, the muses, you know, they inspire Homer and, 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 you know, people who read Homer and recite Homer are, and love it are being inspired by the same force that inspired Homer. It's just passing through their bodies like a, like a, a magnet passes through metal objects, like a magnetic force passes through metal objects. And that's the same sort of thing that Derrida is talking about with leaving his mark on the world through his, through his texts, through his philosophy, through his words. All right, so Derrida says, be alert to these invisible quotation marks, even within a word. And this points to the danger of taking meaning out of context. Because to Derrida, the context of the words are where they derive their meaning. It's from their relationship to one another. So this is him talking about how, how you can... Um, you can put a quotation mark anywhere you want in, in a text. Um, and that brings your attention to, to you know, a, a different meaning, a different, a different way of uh, interpreting it. And there's danger in that. There's danger in misinterpreting something by taking it out of context. So that's also interesting, especially when Derrida is talking about how meaning transforms constantly. It's sort of like... I mean, you definitely lose. You definitely lose something important with the with, with meaning sort of declining and, and disappearing. But even if you have all of that meaning, if you don't have the context, you can't apply it exactly. You know, there's something like that with the context that's just like with the meaning that's fading or that's not accessible to, to the to the reader. It's interesting. Um, it just makes again more more and more evidence for the. Um, for the significance of the idea that the absolute, the absolute um, resting place of the deferral of meaning is vague and uh, um, hard to pin down. All right, so this last couple of quotes here before we change gears. Um, Derrida says, Are you a relativist simply because you say that the other is the other and that every other is other than the other? And then he says, if I want to pay attention to the singularity of the other, the singularity of language, is that relativism? No. Relativism is a doctrine in which there are only points of view with no references to absolutes. That is the opposite to what I have to say. All right, so I want to flush this out a little bit. This is interesting. So this quote was somebody, again, they were talking about relativism and trying to pin Derrida into that, paint him into that corner, which he wasn't having. And so he was, he was pushing back against it. Um, 
and he and he's basically saying, look, am I a relativist just just to but just by saying that something is different from something else, more or less? And that sentence summarizes Derrida's notion of the absolute, you know, the eternal deferral of meaning that rests behind every symbol. And then when he says, um, he says, you know, am I a relativist? Um, you know, talking about the singular singularity of language. Um, he says, no, relativism is a doctrine in which there are only points of view with no ultimate, uh, with no reference to absolutes. He says, that's the opposite of what I have to say. So the other is the ultimate signified to Derrida. The other, it's something that's not like something else. It's other. And so he's describing that now as something like the ultimate signified. That's the absolute you know, the, where the buck stops with the deferral of reference, the potential, the terminator two substance behind our perceptions, in this case, behind meaning. And Derrida believes that all signifiers refer to the absolute, which is infinitely self-referencing and unknowable. So all signifiers, all words, all symbols, all, all you know, everything that has a meaning like that is referencing the same thing. Whatever is the absolute thing behind uh, you know, behind the words, behind the symbols. Now, Derrida saying that he believes that there is that behind every signified. He's not saying there's nothing there. He's saying that there is something there. Um, that it's that it's absolute. That it's infinitely self-referencing and unknowable. Now, he says that in a way that that tries to get around the religious connotations that that, that that statement brings. I mean, what in the world do, could you possibly mean if you're talking about something that's there behind the symbols or something that's there behind the perceptions that's infinitely self-referencing and unknowable? If it's infinite and unknowable and it's, it's the same thing behind every, uh, every signified, every symbol... That's very much like the way Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung talk about, uh, you know, the reality behind our subjective experience. It's something that's unknowable. It's something that's eternal. It's something that I call potentiality. Um, Jordan might call it undifferentiated potential, something like that. So... So if Derrida believes that all words ultimately have the same meaning, it's like undifferentiated meaning behind everything, that points eerily to the mystic understanding of God as one. So that's absolute signified behind everything. It's the same thing. It's one. It's very mystic. I wonder if Derrida saw that. I wonder if he recognized that. I learned um, just recently that these guys were heavy... Um, psychedelic drug users, uh, these, you know, and it, I guess it shouldn't surprise me seeing as how they were writing their philosophy in the 60s and 70s. I mean, fuck, uh, you know, I should have assumed that they were. But now that I know that they were, um, especially people like Deleuze, um, this sort of a thing isn't as surprising as you might think. Where the rub comes in is the fact that these guys all pretend to be atheists. So if you're pretending to be an atheist and you're writing as an atheist and behind the scenes you're tripping balls and having crazy psychedelic experiences and coming up with ideas that there's an absolute signified behind it, the behind everything, like the one, the one single signified behind all meaning, 
I mean, that is a very, a very mystical and religious thing to say. Something you would expect from a, from a, you know, from a, a, a person who's, who's done a lot of psychedelic drugs. Um, so in, in any way, in any case, I wonder that that's one of those things I wonder what Jordan would, uh, would think of that there is something singular behind, behind meaning and behind every representation behind reality, every representation. And I think that's an interesting question because the question is what exactly is representational? Is it just words and ideas that are like that? Or are we like that? Is the cosmos like that? All right, the last uh, quote in this segment. Um, Derrida says, Contrary to what phenomenology tried to make us believe, contrary to what our desire cannot fail to be tempted into believing, the thing itself always escapes. The thing itself always escapes. He's talking about that ultimate reference behind meaning. He's talking about the objective reality behind our subjective experience. What's really there, the thing itself always escapes can never pin that down it doesn't it doesn't keep us from seeking after it though right derda doesn't keep us from searching for it all right so then this next segment is um, it's maybe it's self-serving to my to my end because I because I noticed the quotes the derda quotes that talk about the self and I did that with Foucault as well but it's surprising how many of those quotes are are also religious um, and talk about being in the way that a mystic would talk about being. So I, I, you know, those those quotes stand out to me. And so let's talk about those. The first one says, "He or she is completely covered by language, annihilated by history, a victim one cannot identify." So this is Derrida saying something like what Foucault says about the individual, that the individual doesn't really exist, that. That you as an individual, as, as something separate from all of the influences around you, that that doesn't exist. That's something that's completely covered by language, annihilated by history. That's, how, that's what Derrida says. He's saying that, uh, that the thing that you are is so deeply per, uh, influenced by the, co- the constraints and the context that you find yourself in the history that you came from, the language that you speak, all of the assumptions and perceptions that you share with, you know, with your, with your community, that all of that stuff, it it erases who you are. And that's why he says a victim one cannot identify that you, that you don't really have an individual existence. Um, And again, very, very much the way that Foucault would say. Then he goes on, he says, the constancy of God in my life is called by other names so that I quite rightly pass for an atheist. And this, I think, is the most true thing that Derrida has said about himself. This is something that I feel about Derrida. I also feel about Foucault. Foucault was never brave enough to say so. Derrida does. He says, the constancy of God in my life is called by other names. What he's saying here is this, all this stuff about difference, the infinite deferral of meaning, this fractal understanding of meaning, the, you know, the, the meaning behind everything, this absolute signified behind everything that, that, uh, that, you know, anytime you bring up the word absolute or infinite, you know that we're talking about a concept like God. And Derrida is saying, that's always been a part of my life. I've just always called it some other name so that I quite rightly pass for an atheist. He wants to pass as an atheist. And this, and this, you know, 
era of, of history. Um, you can't be um, an academic and believe in God. You, you wouldn't be taken seriously. So he, he, it's important for him to, to be... He's so modern. He's postmodern, you guys. He, you, know, you know this guy doesn't believe in God. He's, 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 he's matured past that. So he, but he admits that even, even for someone like him, that, that this idea of God has always been a thread throughout his life. And you, you're, not, you know, you're not telling me anything I don't know. It was very obvious to me, reading Derrida, that that was the case. All right, he also says, Psychoanalysis has taught that the dead, a parent, for example, can be more alive for us, more powerful, more scary than the living. It is the question of ghosts. Okay, well, I love that. Um, I love that because it, it it's interesting. It does something like what Jordan Peterson does. It takes something that can be written off, um, the idea that uh, that somebody dead can have an influence on you, and the and the idea that ghosts exist. Um, you can take those those concepts that you could easily write off as immature, as childish, as you know, uh, superstitious, and never think about. And you put them in a way that makes you think about them practically. It makes you understand the truth of them. And it also makes you understand the truth behind something that you, that you might write off. Something like the idea of ghosts. And this is, this is what I mean. He's saying that a dead parent can have an influence on you that lasts beyond their death. And if you're a psycho, psycho anal- doing psychoanalysis on somebody and you're you know, getting to the bottom of, of their, you know, psychological hangups and you find out that, you know, their, their mother or their father was this or was that. And it, you know, at a very young age and it had a, and it had a, a long lasting impression on them, you know, like the, the, the judgmental father, that's something that my brother and I talked about in, in the episode we did together not long ago. Um, and I, by no means do I mean to diminish the role of my dad, the positive role that my dad's had in either of our lives, but to talk about that, um, and this sort of long lasting, negative consequence that that had on both of our lives growing up. You can see um, that even after my dad's gone, that the influence is there, that it remains there, that it, that it, it's, it's still there even as an adult, you know, um, it, and in some ways pulls the strings on my, on my behaviors in ways that I, that I'm not conscious of even, you know, what, what is, a better description of a ghost than that. Somebody who used to be alive that had an impact on you that's no longer here, but that impact is still here. They're still working on you somehow. You know? Um, you know, you can imagine somebody who's had a parent pass away and they're, uh, you know, they've mourned for them or what have you and then at some challenging point in their life they ask themselves, what would my mom have said or what would my dad have said? And the answers are there at hand because you've seen your mom or your dad, you know, act so, so many times. You've heard them give you advice so many times. You already know how they're going to see this. You already know what they're going to tell you. And if you ask yourself that question, they will tell you through your own words and thoughts. You have that experience and tell me ghosts don't exist. In a, in a certain way, they do. Absolutely. And that's interesting. It puts context, practical context, this mythological idea that makes you understand why it is we still tell ghost stories and we still enjoy them. That's the kind of thing Jordan Peterson does when he, when he t- does his biblical lectures. 
So Jordan, I think Derrida beat you, beat you to that here with this talk about ghosts. But, you know, I think you're, you know, alike in that way. I'll put it that way. All right, so Derrida says, And if my secret self, that which can be revealed only to the other, to the holy other, to God if you wish, if a secret that I will never reflect on, that I will never know or experience or possess as my own, then what sense is there in saying that it is my secret? It is not a matter of knowing, and that is there for no one. The question of the self. Who am I, not in the sense of who I am, but rather, who is this I that can say who? What is the I, and what becomes of of responsibility once the identity of the I trembles in secret? So I love this little little poetic paragraph here. But again, one, one where he specifically talks about God. And he talks about the thing, the thing that's other, that's wholly other. And this is interesting because this idea of difference that he that he brought up, um, one of the things he he talks about is how you, that you're differentiating meaning, you're differentiating what one thing means versus what some other thing means, even though the reality, the meaning behind both of those things is the same. It's the absolute reference that he's talking about. That's the thing he means when he says the other. Is he's talking about. That's how we actually distinguish things. Like, how are they different from one another? That's what something means. If I want to know what a cup is, it's a cup is all the things that a, you know, that a table is that, you know, that, that a cup is also, but it's also the things that a table's not. You know what I mean? It's like we can, we can get to the meaning of something strictly by how it compares and contrasts with other things. And that's, that's an interesting reality that there's something to that. Um, that things are all self-referential like that. And the mystery that he's talking about, the mystery that he can't know or possess as his own, he's saying. He's saying, my secret self. And what he means is God. He even says so. He says, the holy other. God, if you wish. He says, I can't reflect on that thing because I will never know or experience or possess that thing as my own. I'm, I'm never God. Now, that's interesting. If you, that's interesting to say, you know, for somebody who's clearly had psychedelic experiences, maybe maybe he needed to do a little bit more before he could uh, possess God as his own. But it's certainly possible. The mystic experience is certainly possible. That's something that I believe. I know it's not clear that he dared got that, or he wouldn't have said this. But he's admitting anyway that there is a secret self, that there is God within himself. He's simply not going to seek after it. Because it's unknowable to him. And he says, And what becomes of responsibility once this once the identity of the I trembles in secret? That's a good that's an interesting question. If you're forced to recognize yourself as God or that, that recognize that God is within you somehow, what does that do to the idea of responsibility? If you believe yourself to be God somehow. What does that do to your idea of responsibility? What are you responsible for then? What do you have power to do then? What are you obligated to do then if you're God? Uh, I think to Derrida, it's, it's easier to just never reflect on it, as he says. It is a secret I will never reflect on, that I will never know or experience or possess as my own. So, why think about it? Hmm... 
He also says something very Petersonian here. He says, a conscience that looks death in the face is another name for freedom. A conscience that looks death in the face is another name for freedom. That's true. I mean, you can imagine if you're a kid and you're bullied, let's say, and it, it ruins your experience. You know, you're afraid every day. You don't want to go to school. You don't want to get up. You don't want to get out of bed. You're in constant fear. The kid, that kid who, who, who finally stands up to the bully and looks death in the face, whether he has to take his lumps or not, he's going to be free from that point on. He's, now, he's not going to be a prisoner to the fear of the unknown any, any longer. And that's exactly what Jordan Peterson says to do. That's exactly what he says to do. He says to, to look at the dragon in the face. The dragon of chaos. Mm. So there's some correspondence there between Derrida and Peterson. All right, so Derrida says, I cannot respond to the call, the request, the obligation, or even the love of another without sacrificing the other other, the other others. All right, so this is interesting. I think what this is getting at is that something that Jordan Peterson says is that we have to select the highest value to pursue. And this is the idea of a hierarchy. It's that we look at the world, we see the way things are, we make our own judgments about what is good, what is best. And those things, we, we cannot help by putting those things at the top of a hierarchy. These are the things we want. These are the things that we think should be more than anything else. So those things all stack up underneath. So the idea of just having a, a notion of what is good or what should be, wanting anything at all, is a moral act. And it's a hierarchical act. And it's, it's at the origin of hierarchies. It's something that Derrida and the postmodernists point out as one of those constraints that we can't help but get out from under like our own language, uh, like, the, like the idea of normal to Foucault. We can never get out from under, under these concepts that constrain us. Um, and and hi, hi, a hierarchy, the idea of a hierarchy is one of them. But anytime you make a decision, anytime you act, you're creating a hierarchy. You, you, you have no choice because you're selecting something that you want to pursue. And by doing that, you're putting it at the top of the hierarchy. And so when Derrida says that I cannot respond to the call or even the love of another without sacrificing some other thing, that, that's, what he's, that's exactly what he's saying. If you say to yourself that a, your career is, is more valuable than, uh, than you know, a family, let's say, then you're putting the career at the top of the hierarchy and everything else is below that, including a family. So you're sacrificing a family to have the career. You're always doing that in a hierarchy. You're always creating a hierarchy when you make a choice. And, and I, I, again, you can see how it's inevitable. You cannot get around that. But nonetheless, the postmodernists like Derrida are going to say, but, but keep in mind, that's one of those constraints that's invisible to you, that's somehow holding you down or keeping you from being genuine or keeping you from being what you might be, and that that's somehow better. All right, so Derrida says, the first question of philosophy is what, what it is to be. What is being? The question of being is itself always already divided between who and what. That's subject and object. He says, is, is being someone or something? 
And then he says, fidelity is threatened by the difference between the who and the what. There are things like, oh, excuse me, before I, before I move on. So this is interesting. This is like a, something that Hegel or Heidegger would say to talk about being philosophically. And he says that it is the first question of philosophy. And that's exactly what, what Hegel and Heidegger would say. It is the first question of philosophy. We are a being existing within being. That's something that we don't have a choice over. It just is. And we have to question that because according to the postmodernists, even something like being is a constraint that we find ourselves in, that we can't, that we don't have a choice in, over and that we can't escape from. And the idea is that even that is some sort of a structure that we're forced to find ourselves in. And we don't have a choice in the matter. To be beings within being is, is it's subjects within an object that that's something that we don't have a choice in. And somehow that represents a constraint, a structure that, that, that we're forced to exist in. And what might we be able to be if we didn't have that structure? And here again, we start tiptoeing in very mystic territory. Because to put this in a different way, when we're asking about being, he says the question of being itself... Uh, is he says is itself always already divided into who and what subject and object so what would it be if we were in a situation where that wasn't the case those things weren't divided subject and object weren't divided and then we don't have being we don't have the constraints of being so the way that Jordan Peterson or Carl Jung would talk about this is to say that what you're talking about is the Ouroboros. You're talking about opposites united. You're talking about the state in which subject and object are one thing. And whatever that is, symbolically, mythologically, whatever that is, that's the thing that gave birth to the cosmos. That's the Ouroboros. That's the, that's the self-created, self-referencing thing. It's the dragon eating its tail. It's the yin and the yang. And, be, and, and being doesn't exist in that, in that state. So from a religious perspective, from a mythological perspective, the Ouroboros, the, 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 that's the seed of the Big Bang, the, the state when consciousness was not yet separated into subject and object, when it was one thing. And there was no being then. There was only God. Um, and and I, I, I say that in, in like a temporal way, like, it, like, it's a, like there was a time when God was like that and a time when God was like being, and I'm not entirely sure that's the case. But, a, but the state in which subject and object together, before they're separated, is something that's other, like Derrida says. It's not like being. It's not like the material world. It's not like you and I. It's something completely different. And the only thing you can call that is other, and that's what Derrida calls it. He also calls it God. And that, that works too. So that's very, very interesting. And I don't know if Derrida ever asked the question that way um, because he, you know, he was obviously familiar with psych psychoanalysis with Freud and Jung. I can't imagine he didn't think about it that way. But if he did, he, he doesn't say so. All right, he, he then says, There are things like reflecting pools and images, an infinite reference from one to the other but no longer a source, a spring. There is no longer any simple origin, for what is reflected is split in itself, and not only as an addition to itself of its image. The reflection, the image, the double, 
splits what it doubles. The origin of the speculation becomes a difference. What can look at itself is not one, and the law of the addition of the origin to its representation, or the thing to its image, is that one plus one makes at least three. So this is another amazing quote, and it's not dissimilar from the ones we just read. It, this, is, this is really, in my opinion, some of the really good stuff from Derrida. So he says there are things like reflecting pools and images. So now we're talking about images and image and reflections of images, okay? And he says, an infinite reference from one to the other. So imagine you've got images and reflections of images and references and relationships between them. Then he says, but no longer a source, a spring. So you no longer have a place where those images are coming from. You just have the images, their reflections, and the interactions and relationships between those reflections. Whatever the hell that means. And he says, there's no longer any simple origin. For what is reflected is split in itself, and not only as an addition to itself of its image. So this is really wordy and confusing. Um, but let's, let's try. So he says, what is reflected is split. Okay, so it's like the reflection itself is a double. It's a splitting of the thing into two things in some way. Okay, that makes sense. We know what a reflection is. It kind of does do that. Um, he says, the origin of the speculation becomes a difference. And he says, what can look at itself is not one. Okay, so imagine, this is... This is Really going to be hard, hard to uh, to do, but I'm going to try. So imagine that I'm going to. Oh boy, how do I do this? I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it this way. All right. So imagine that. Um, so imagine. Try to imagine consciousness, the thing that you are, awareness, consciousness, all by itself. Imagine it free floating, all by itself. Nothing else exists. Only consciousness. This is what I imagine God is. I realize that, you know, that's as clear as mud. But just imagine. Try. Close your eyes. Imagine. There's only awareness. There is nothing else. Just consciousness. Now, what consciousness does, the thing that you and I do, we're, we're conscious creatures. What we do is we have experiences. That seems to be what consciousness does. So imagine you're this free-floating consciousness. There is nothing. Nothing exists. But what you do is experience and what's happening here? What, what is consciousness doing exactly? It's, it seems like consciousness, can, in the absence of anything else, can only do one thing, can only experience. And if there's only consciousness, then what it's experiencing is itself. Okay? And I know that's like obvious and in, in, in everything, but it's important to put it that way because I'm trying to put this in the context of ontology of the of of god of talking about the origins of of consciousness and of reality so imagine if consciousness is that thing that i'm calling god and that it doesn't it, there's nothing else that exists but consciousness what it would do is experience itself and so when derrida starts talking about reflecting pools and images and an infinite reference from one to the other but the source is no longer there this I, this is the image that i get you have consciousness experiencing itself, self-consciousness. And that seems to be like consciousness projecting an image of itself to experience. 
And that's representational. It's a representation of itself. It's like an image or a reflection of itself. That's the thing that God is experiencing. And that may sound strange, but that's, but that's exactly the same way that scientists and philosophers talk about how we experience the world. Because we know we don't all experience the world the same way in terms of our perceptions. You know, our perceptions are different. So there's some objective thing there, perhaps, that we're all experiencing a little bit differently. And if, if consciousness is all there is, that thing that we're experiencing is exactly the same. But it seems different to us. Our, all of our experiences, you know, our, ourselves, we always seem different from one another. You know, it's not at all obvious to us that, that you know, that, that um, you know, behind our perceptions is the same thing. The, the you know, perceptions make them seem like they're different things. So this, this, I think, is something like the image that Derrida is playing with, that, um, that you've, got, you've got consciousness, which is like this, I guess you could say the spring or the source, this original image, and the, reflecting, the, the, the reflection, these other images, their consciousness is self-experience. And the relationship between those, between those d- different self-experiences um, is, seems to be what is being described here. And then he says at the end that the law of addition of the origin to its representation, and that's, again, the same language I just used, um, or the thing to its image, is that one plus one makes three. And so this is a reference to this fractal image that comes up when we talk about this. This is something that would come up between people who had done psychedelic drugs. This is why I find it interesting that the postmodernists lived in that era, and especially people like Deleuze very openly talking about using psychedelics often, that what you're talking about here is um, consciousness having represented itself, experiencing that representation, and that representation being different from the consciousness that it, that it experienced, that it experienced it. So what you end up having is somehow three consciousnesses here. You have the, the source, you have its representation, and then you have this sort of changed or transformed version that has experienced itself. I know that's as clear as mud, but what you end up having here is a fractal image that gets created where the relationships now between the image and its reflections have sort of an infinite number of combinations that can, that can uh, derive. Every time something experiences something, it's changed by it. So you have some, something new in the mix. You have something novel that's been created and a, a new relationship that can exist, a new reference that can exist. And there's a way in which we can talk about language in that way. And we could talk about new words and new meaning getting formed by the, by the reference and combination of words and ideas. And then there's ways in which we can talk about that, um, f- you know, from the, the material sense. We can talk about, um, you know, different combinations of fundamental particles and atoms coming together to make new and novel compounds and new and novel, you know, uh, uh, living creatures and all that sort of thing. That there is a fractal component here. Where what you're seeing happening in the world of meaning and symbols and words is also seen in the biological world and in the material world. And that's also something that comes, for, for, comes up in the mystic experience. And you're seeing it in Derrida's philosophy. Um, I know it took a long time to get there, but I think that's what he's getting at. And then he says, But it happens that supplementarity describes the chain itself, the being the structure of substitution, 
the articulation of desire and of language, the logic of all conceptual oppositions. It tells us in a text what a text is. It tells us in writing what writing is. The concept of the supplement designated textuality itself in an indefinitely multiplied structure. So here, here this idea of supplementarity comes in, which is one of his philosophical words that goes along with difference. Um, and he says that it describes the chain itself, the being, the structure of substitution. And this has to do with meaning. This has to do with this cloud of meaning that surrounds any particular um, object of knowledge, according to Derrida. Um, and uh, he says the articulation of desire and of language, the logic of all conceptual oppositions. And then he says it tells us in a text what a text is. It tells us in writing what writing is. Um, so there's something about, when he's talking about supplementarity, what he's saying is that there's something about um, what's going on in language that tells you what language is. It, it's self-referencing in, in a way. And that's a way of talking about something that self-referencing and self-created are things that go together for me. Um, when we're talking about symbols, and I brought up the Ouroboros earlier, you know, you got this symbol of a, of a serpent swallowing its tail. It's in the shape of a circle. It's like it's got no beginning and no end, and it's all self-contained. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about meaning and language. He's saying it's all self-referencing and self-contained. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of exists within itself, and you can find out what it is only through it. You can find out what language is only through language, something like that. Um, something that's like that, that's completely self-contained, that has no beginning and, and no end, and, and it's completely self-referential. You can definitely see that in language and meaning, but you can also see that in the idea of God. You know, if, if, if consciousness or God is, um, is the thing that everything comes from, then it's like that. It's self-created. Everything comes from it. And all everything's meaning comes from it. It's, it's self-referential as well. So to, to Derrida, talking about meaning and language and, and then contrasting that to the way Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung would talk about, you know, ontology and the origins of, of uh, you know, um, at least the, the, how we mythologically understand the origins of the cosmos. Those things line up completely. And I wonder what Jordan would have to say about that. Ah, oh boy. Um, lastly, he says uh, here that um, uh, he says that the concept of, of the supplement um, designate textuality itself in an infinitely multiplied structure. So that indefinitely multiplied structure is another way of talking about the fractal. It's another way of, you could talk about fractal geometry in exactly that way. Indefinitely multiplied structure. So, so this this mystic idea of um, the self created and this you know fractal image it's all over the place in Derrida. All right, he says the original or transcendental signified is never absolutely present outside a system of differences. The absence of the trans transcendental signified extends the domain and the interplay of the signification ad infinitum. So. I find, I find this interesting for this reason. Um, he says the original or transcendental signified is never absolutely present outside of a system of differences. 
So when he says the original transcendental signified, he's talking about the, the place where the buck stops with meaning. Every meaning defers back all the way back to some beginning, some origin point. And he's calling that the transcendental signified. Um, he says that that is never present outside of a system of differences. And you remember earlier how we were talking about meaning, and we said that you, you can find out what something means simply by saying how it's different from other things. That that's, what, that's what's meant here. That a system of meaning, of references and counter-references, that that's actually... That that's actually generating this transcendental signified. That you don't have this idea of God, this origin point of, of all meaning, without this system of opposites and differences. And you can see that in language. It's very clear, clear in language. But when you try to make that, when you try to take that uh, from the language context to the sort of religious context, it's sort of interesting. Because going back to the example that we talked about with the Ouroboros, about what it, what it representing is, is opposites united, specifically subject and object united. But Jordan Peterson would also talk about it as chaos and order united. But in any case, it's these it's it's a way of thinking about opposites united. Um, and when when opposites are united, they do sort of lose their meaning. If I have um, subject and object, and I merge them into one thing, meaning sort of goes away. It it, it instantly sort of dissolves. I need the context of subject and object to have meaning or knowledge at all. Those things have to be separate. And so there are all sorts of ancient mythological stories about the Ouroboros, about the beginning of, of, the, of creation, about, about the beginning of things. And those, those myths talk about the separation of this original deity, this Ouroboros, God, separating that thing into, uh, into two pieces. And in doing so, creating three, creating the heavens, the earth, and the space in between, something like that, um, which is something that we just saw a little earlier about uh, when Derrida said one plus one makes at least three. Um, but what you have here is this mythological idea of everything together, all opposites united, that when that happens, when that separation happens, that then you're creating something, then you're creating being, then you're, then you're creating the space where consciousness can exist. And it's very mystical. Um, and so the idea here is that God exists with, within this separated um, union of opposites. So I can say that from this mythological perspective that you've got these opposites united, you separate them into and create order, create you know the cosmos out of it. And I look at Derrida and he says that the absolute is 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 present is, excuse me is never present outside of a system of differences the system of differences are these separated opposites that used to be united and what what they were when they were united is this transcendental signified it's god and and what Derrida's trying to say here is look you have to have this system of differences in order for the absolute signified to exist so you've got to have these, you know, this this um, this material plane. You have to have, you have to have this place where consciousness exists in in the mythological perspective, in order for God to exist. So there's this connection between being and God, and it's 
it's muddy with Derrida. It's very muddy. It's not as clear as it is with Spinoza. It's not as clear as it is with Parmenides, but it's there with Derrida. The idea that God, this absolute transcendental, and this system of opposites, which which you know I would call being, for lack of a better word, and even though we could talk about that from the context of, of uh, language, let's say, but I, w- I would just, again, talk about that from the idea of our subjective experience, uh, period. Um, it's really interesting how it lines up in this idea of supplementarity, how it, how it lines up with the idea of a self-contained system of meaning or in a self-contained system of uh, consciousness. Whew, buddy. And that's what the material that's what the material cosmos is. Oh, buddy. Uh, okay. All right, so Derrida says, um, he says, the gram is neither a signifier nor a signified, neither a sign nor a thing, neither a presence nor an absence, neither a position nor a negation, etc. Spacing is neither space nor time. And I think what he's saying here is that the signified means all things. It, it, could, it could be all things. It's potentiality. So when he says the gram is, is neither a signifier nor a signified, and then neither a sign nor a thing, neither a presence nor an absence, neither a positive, positive position or a negation, um, he's saying that it's not one thing or it's opposite. That's what, He just keeps saying it over and over again. It's not this or it's opposite. What does that mean? It means it's nothing, but it also means it could be anything. And I, that's... That's that mystic, that's that mystic um, uh, thread that Jordan plays with, that Derrida's playing with. It's the same thread. And then he says, that which I call a text is practically everything. Speech is a text. Gesture is a text. Reality is a text. The text is not a center. The text is an openness without borders of ever-differentiating references. So you see here, this is a, obviously a stretch, but this is, this is coming from a person who, who puts so much emphasis on meaning and writing and symbols and signs. And what, there's, when what Derrida is saying is something interesting. He's saying everything is a text, which is like, which is like saying that, uh, like what, what Foucault would say, that so much of what we um, are dealing with in our experience are things that are restricting us or power that's being exerted against us. And so you can see this from that perspective. Speech is like that. Gestures are like that. But then he says, reality is like that. So now he's saying reality is like a text. And that sounds a lot like what I was saying earlier when I was talking about things being representational. It's like if language is representational, we know that. We know that these are that language are symbols that represent things in the world. It's representational. That might it be that that you and I are representational. That you and I are like symbols that that hold meaning within us, within our actions, within our what manner of being, within our existence somehow. Um in a way in a way like we can be read in a way that we don't understand. Something like that. This is what Derrida says when he, when he brings this idea in and adds that reality is like a text. And you can look at that from, from Foucault's perspective, too, and say that, 
you know, that even reality in, in, in so many ways, like the way that our biology developed that caused us to perceive and, and the way that we can and, and uh, you know, to give us the instincts that we have and, you know, just the way that we are, the way that we experience reality, that even that was sort of programmed in, in us by our nature and nurture, both, and that they represent constraints and confines that we can't, you know, we can't exist in a different way because we're tied to this way of being something like that. So you can look at it that way. Uh, and I don't know that Derrida is doing exactly that. Um, but it's, it's interesting. You can read it that way as well. Okay. And then he goes on, he says, I know a sentence that is still more terrifying than I am alone. And it is, I am alone with you. He says, meditate on the abyss of such a sentence. I am alone with you. With you, I am alone. Alone in all the world. And, you know, I've got chills right now reading that sentence. It's, you know, I understand. I understand the terror that he's talking about. Um, there is, I think he's pointing out several things. He's pointing out this idea that we're all, as conscious creatures, we're all island universes. We can't we can't exactly share our consciousness with anybody. We can, to a certain degree, through language and through and through uh, text and through you know through signs and signifiers, like he said. Uh, we can sort of, but we can never really know what it's like to be another person. We can we can never be another person. But there is so much of the desire to to do that in postmodernism. You see it in Foucault. You see it in Derrida, uh, where Foucault says that he wa- he wants to have no face. He want you know he wants to merge into the collective and have no face, um, and and that's and that's what I'm seeing here uh, with with Derrida when he describes being alone and, and and being alone with someone else, like islands of consciousness that can never that you you know you you know that there's another conscious creature out there you, or you hope that there might be th- things out there that are just like you, and you can never know for sure. Uh, and to be alone, you know, for social for a social creature like a human being is a scary thing. Nobody wants to be alone. It's boring and it's scary and it's desperate. But imagine being like that, alone, with somebody else. Like, to know that there's someone just like you, but you can't ever connect with them. You can't ever be them. You can't ever merge with them. You know, something like that. Um, it is terrifying. And th- there's something about our reality that's like that. And then all of our efforts to connect and to be one with each other, that that is a religious impulse, you know, to have no face, like Foucault said, to merge into the collective, to merge into God, to have an ego death, to have a mystic experience, to be one with the universe. That's the kind of thing that, that, that we're, that we're talking about here. And the postmodernists seem to really desire that. Just as much as any of the uh, of, of the religious philosophers, but they don't admit, and they they can't admit that it is a religious impulse. And I don't know why that is, apart from the, the time when they were writing. All right, then he says, "To live by definition is not something one learns, not from oneself. It is not learned from life, taught by death, only from the other, and by death." Now remember. When Derrida says the other, he's talking about the absolute signified, or God. 
He says, to live by definition is not something one learns. It can only be learned from God and by death. Strange thing to say for an atheist. And in the last uh, quote in this line, he says, everyone must assume their own death. That is to say, the one thing in the world that no one else can either give or take. Therein resides freedom and responsibility. All right, when he says everyone must assume their own death, and then he says therein lies freedom, that reminds me of that earlier quote he said about about turning around and facing death, uh, you know, looking death in the eyes, that that, that that does correspond to freedom, the way that Jordan Peterson describes facing your fears, you know, in the... Um, uh, in a psychological practice or in your day-to-day. Facing your fears is a way of becoming more brave. It's a way of becoming less paralyzed by the unknown. It's a way of being able to live more free. It's absolutely connected to freedom. And Derrida points out here that it's also connected to responsibility. There is a connection be- between freedom and responsibility. So if you have the freedom to do as you will, to do as you choose, that it comes hand-in-hand with the responsibility for the consequences of those behaviors. So you've got both. Um, I, I add that in only because I think that responsibility bit is something that is difficult to reconcile with someone like Foucault, um, who, who talks about the group so much. You know, if it's the group that's the locus of action, if it's the group that's important, um, you know, I, I have to ask, when individuals merge into a group, fade into a collective... Typically, the responsibility fades right along with the individuality because there is no one person who's responsible anymore. So everybody's responsible, and that means nobody is responsible. That's what that means. When everybody is responsible, nobody is responsible. Um, you know, there's something called the tragedy of the commons that illustrates this. If you, if you ever look at, like, maps of uh, Native American reservation land, um, there are maps, especially in the on the East Coast, where... Um, the property lines there uh, in these reservations, some of the plots are privately owned and some of them are communally owned. And you can tell which is which with satellite images. You know, you can tell just by seeing what it looks like. The ones that are privately owned are green and manicured and productive. And the ones that are communally owned are dead and brown and full of weeds and, you know, broken down buildings, half destroyed and nobody cares because the group always pushes that responsibility off to who? To who? That's exactly the point. There is nobody to point to when you say the group. Nobody has that responsibility. And I think this is something that's that's completely ignored by the postmodernists today. It's complete, completely ignored by the, by the progressives and the political left that adhere to this type of postmodern uh, ideas. And Derrida is just bringing this up, and I want to share that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking to those people now. That uh, you know that that freedom go, does go hand in hand with responsibility. Um, and if you're one of those people that wants to tear down the institutions like Foucault does, to imp, to allow maximum freedom, maximum individual freedom and creativity, that you have to understand. In doing that, you run the risk of the responsibility falling on no one. And that is a risk. You know, what, what happens when the institutions get torn down and nobody has the responsibility for, for building them back up or replacing them? What happens then? What happens then? All right, so there's just very little uh, that Derrida um, brings up on the political side um, because so much of Jordan's... Um, 
um, issue with postmodernism boils down to the connection with Marxism. Um, I want to read what I can about um, Derrida's political um, thoughts. Firstly, he says, um, what is certain is that I am not a Marxist. That's a quote from Derrida. What is certain is that I am not a Marxist. Not entirely sure what he means by that, but I'm going to take it for its surface meaning. Uh, Maybe Derrida was not, in truth, a Marxist. He did, however, say this. Capitalist societies can always heave a sigh of relief and say to themselves, communism is finished since the collapse of the totalitarianism of the 20th century. And not only is it finished, but it did not take place. It was only a ghost. They do, they do no more than disavow the undeniable itself. A ghost never dies. It remains always to come and to come back. Okay, so for someone who's not a Marxist, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. Maybe it's a bit of a warning, uh, a bit of a warning as well. And what Derrida is saying here is that, just like he said before when he was talking about how powerful ghosts can be when you, when you think about, you know, the important people in your life ha- who, having passed away, still have dramatic influences on you. And he's saying the same thing is true with Marxism. Just because it failed in its grand experiments of the 20th century, and it failed in a terrible and, uh, you know, um, um, I don't even know what descriptive word to use, in a terrible and massive way, uh, even though that happened, that the idea it's itself is a ghost, and it will never die, that it will come back, and that it, it, we run the risk of that. And if Kyle were still here, I'm sure he would have plenty to say on that, that that is absolutely the case. The spirit of Marxism and the spirit of communism is very much alive and well in, in the social democratic movements of the world, in the progressive movements in the, of the world, um, in, in the, the communist and the Green Party movements in the United States, and, and, and it just goes on and on. It's, it's not dead. It's still something that, that's there, and it's still tied into these postmodern beliefs. Now, there's very, there's very little that I can see in the critique that the postmodernists have of language and meaning and of society and, and, uh, and tradition and culture. There's very little that I see of their critique of those things that has political implications that are obvious to me. Really, honestly, the idea that, um, I mean, Foucault is a little bit, a little bit different because of his, of his emphasis on power, but the idea that, the idea that there are things that constrain our, ourselves, our actions and our thoughts and our consciousness that are not exactly obvious to us. Um, and the idea that meaning is hard to pin down and to define and, uh, that it's always changing. I don't know what sort of implications you can draw along political lines with any of that stuff. Apart from the idea that society is always transforming in a fractal way, just like meaning is always transforming and language is always transforming, that society is transforming and that human beings are transforming and that our needs and, and uh, um you know, our needs and desires are, are always transforming. So there's a need for society and government to always transform. And so there's a need, let's say, to always keep that in mind. And maybe, you know, maybe critique and deconstruction and these postmodern, uh, you know, tools are a way, are a way of doing that. Uh, maybe they're not the best way, but they are a way. And I do think that's important. But I don't know, 
I don't I don't have any way of bridging the gap between those really interesting ideas about truth and reality in the objective world to how a society should be governed if a society should be governed um you know it's just not clear to me that postmodernism has any direct connection between society and government um Again, apart from recognizing that 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 things are transforming and that uh, you know that government and society needs needs to do the same. I mean, uh, I mean beyond Foucault's insistence on group dynamics, I just think there's very very little to connect postmodern philosophy to any kind of political system, let alone uh, this strong connection it seems to have to communism. I think it just I think it literally ties back to the time in which these people were writing. You know, these, these are people who lived through the Second World War. These are people who, whose parents lived through, uh, you know, and, and, and they lived through the Great Depression, but whose parents lived through the Great Depression and, this, and the First World War and saw the development of, uh, of government from kind of a, a feudal system where everything was still run by emperors and monarchs to kind of the modern system that broke, broke up in between, uh, you know, different types of democracy, representative government, and, and uh, socialism. Um, so, so it's, it's almost like these postmodern ideas are held sacred by the modern day left and progressives because the people who had these ideas lived in a time when communism was at its height, uh, from the time it developed through its height and, um, and, and were sympathetic to it, you know, because these individuals were sympathetic to communism and collectivism that seems to be the reason why their ideas are are held um, by these modern day progressives and 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 you know would be communists. That's kind of how how it looks to me. I mean, it. it I don't know what else to say. That's kind of how it looks to me. So, how do we bring this to a close? I think what struck me the most in my introduction to postmodernism, first through Foucault and now through Derrida is the continual striving towards the mystery behind being. A strange, a strange obsession for a group of atheists, if you ask me. Foucault calls this the power dynamic, or the political will, and he sees it as a struggle between opposing forces that manifest itself in nature, in human beings, and in human society. Derrida, on the other hand, he seeks after the absolute other, the ever-fleeting meaning that rests at the bedrock of, of ideas and, and perceptions as well. Derrida points to all forms of representation, ideas, words, texts, images, and perhaps even material objects themselves, as a reference or a deferral of meaning to something else. That something else, however, goes infinitely backwards and finds no rest, no origin point. It is as though Derrida is trying to describe the same fractal metaphor that arises from the mystic experience where consciousness or God is understood as, as an, inf an infinite process of self-experience, an infinite self-referencing, to put it in Derrida's words. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. 
thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.